0: Cells. 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 Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked.
1: Interlinked.
0: What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger?
2: Interlinked.
3: You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, The Blade Runner Podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, The Blade Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green
2: and Micah Green.
3: Welcome to the show, everyone. Today we are here yeah. to uh, discuss another anatomy of the scene. It's something that uh, it's really taken off for us. We had a lot of great responses to Um this is a direct follow-up to, in some ways, the last Anatomy of the Scene, which was when Deckard interviewed Rachel. And so we're moving to 2049, and we're talking about When Love Meets K and the similarities, the vast differences between a very similar setup from the original film. But before we get into that...
0: Yeah, we got some new patrons, and I'm going to go ahead and read their names because they deserve it, including, drumroll, our 100th. Active patron who is about to get revealed. So I'm going to go back to the beginning of February because it's been a, been a few weeks and we have some new people. Uh, so we have Marshall A. Lewis who joined February 1st. We have Andrew Dayish, the 100th patron who joined on February 7th, which is very exciting because it also coincided almost exactly with us taking over the 500,000 download mark on Perfect Organism. And uh you can bet when we get there on Shoulder of Ryan, we're going to celebrate that too. Also, Nawan, Kevin Sellinger. Adam DeJanes, and Jordan Nash, who just joined as we record this last night at a very generous level. And we are so excited and thrilled, and we can't wait to bring you new stuff. So thank you, everybody. And if you want to join them, just go to bladeburnerpodcast.com slash support or go right to Patreon and look up Perfect Organism because we share an account. And, uh, and you can join there and get instant access to at this point if not if not thousands at least hundreds of hours of additional content (laughs) we'll say billions of hours (laughs) of new stuff but yeah so thank you everybody so much for joining thank thank you you.
1: there must be something else we can find Brian. another prodigal serial number returns a 30 year old open case finally closed thank you officer I'm here for Mr. Wallace. I'm love. He named you. Must be special. I'm here for Mr. Wallace. Follow me.
3: So let's get right into this. Um, Again, the setup is Anatomy of a Scene. It's a new series that we're doing. We will continue to do here and there. Um, We have a lot more planned in terms of more formal, more deep dive episodes into more serious, the mysterious end of Blade Runner and the Blade Runner discussion. But today we're here to discuss the scene where Deckard meets love for the first time at the Wallace Corporation. And uh, uh, what is playing in that scene eventually is Deckard's interview of Rachel. So it's this great moment or series of moments in this scene to really jump into and discuss because there's a lot there.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting study in how that original scene that we talked about on our previous Anatomy of the Scene resonates in the world of 2049 it's also a good opportunity to look at the at the replicants in 2049 and how different they are and what their historical predecessors look like to them and what that kind of reveals about themselves. And it's also, in my opinion, visually some of the most incredible stuff in the entire film. And when when I'm looking at this scene, I look at it as really starting with Kay uh, rolling into the file clerk t- played by Tomas Lamarqui, who was on our show years ago. And you know this file clerk leads him through into the Wallace Corp, and they have a little bit of a—it's—it's it's about as close to an exposition dump as Twenty Forty Nine gives us, but it's done in a very tasteful way, where it's told through a personal lens about the blackout and baby pictures and things like that. So it doesn't feel like it's this sort of info dump. And then, of course, we're introduced for the first time in the film to Love, who uh, is introduced to us in a manner that is very directly reminiscent of Rachel. In that the first time we see her, she is, you know, in this beautiful room in this very, uh, you know, geometric outfit with a glass of tea. And she's interviewing this potential client about, you know, ordering some replicants. And we you know see her for the first time very much like we see Rachel for the first time so we're thinking already as viewers of that scene with Deckard and Rachel and we're kind of replaying it in our minds and that gives us this really great context to see the rest of the sequence out in because we can directly compare it in some ways to the original
1: the ancient models give the entire endeavor a bad name what a gift don't you think from Mr. Wallace to the world. The outer colonies would never have flourished had he not bought Tyrell, revivified the technology. To say the least of what we do.
2: It's so interesting. Um, When I recently rewatched the scene, just like the richness of the subtext of this scene and just how deep and colorful it is it's not very many lines if you think about it but it's it's just so full of undertones and a lot of subtext between both characters within each character that we we get to watch um interesting Patrick that you brought up that whole little interaction with the clerk I found it so uh, this time that we watched it it was very interesting it kind of struck me that the clerk doesn't seem to recognize Kay's model Um, at least he doesn't realize that he's a Nexus 9 because he talks about um, where Kay might have been during the blackout. And Kay mentions, oh, that was before my time. So it's interesting to me that like this clerk who has all this plethora of knowledge at his fingertips, he works for Wallace, he's in the archival section of Wallace's um, entire corporation, and he doesn't seem to note that Kay is I mean, he may not even know Kay's a replicant, but he doesn't e- he at least he doesn't know the generation of replicant that Kay is. And I found that really interesting because he asks him where he was during the blackout and tries to get into like his memories and relate to him in that way. And I think it's it's cool to see Kay sort of deflect that subtly by saying, Oh, it was before my time. Not saying, well, I wasn't around, I wasn't manufactured by then, but it was just before my time a little bit. So I thought that interaction was really interesting as a setup and it's it's all through this like you said patrick beautiful lens of this world that wallace has created this sort of mysterious secretive place that not everyone gets to go to very few people i'm sure go into that archival section so it's just i i just kept repeating how much i love this movie so much with this scene
3: it's an interesting uh look at that scene i I, i've never thought about what the clerk might have expected or from Kay, or how he might have viewed Kay, I think automatically, I would imagine, at least from my perspective, again, who knows, really, um, is when Kay is there at the clerk's desk and he has the hair sample, the clerk already knows this is a Blade Runner. This is a a replicant. But we don't know. The clerk is, it's interesting, the clerk is almost strangely naive in a in a way. He's there to do his job like he hasn't like he never talks to people, which is probably the case. He has no social cues. But Kay does. Kay, they've made Kay with enough social cues to kind of where he kind of looks at him like and he makes that joke like I bet you were adorable. Like Kay's like you're kind of strange. You know, Kay's even you can see it on his face. Um it is a an interesting first reaction. But again, even the setup of Kay going to Wallace is very similar, of course, to Deckard going to the Tyrell Corporation. But what's happening in, in the first Blade Runner film and then the sequel is you have people who don't know who they are going, you know, Deckard doesn't know who he is in many regards, but Kay does. Kay knows who he is, he knows what his job is. And then when he meets Love, she knows who she is and she knows who, what her job is. So all of that mystery is gone, not like gone like we're missing it. It's a completely different setup under the guise of a very familiar setup.
0: Yeah, that's well said. Uh, I want to get to that in a second. But before I forget, something I've been doing a little bit on our Facebook page lately is posting um, examples of this one characteristic shot that really defines the cinematography of 2049 for me, which is that third person eye level directly behind K while he's moving symmetrically in the middle of the frame towards something. And that happens in many examples throughout the film. Uh, most notably, of course, when he walks into Las Vegas, but it also there's a beautiful example of it that I need to remember to put up on Facebook later, where uh, love is bringing him down into the headquarters and they you know are about to pass through all those replicants in the in the tanks or whatever that they're entombed within. And it, we get that shot again from directly behind of K where everything is symmetrical and we're kind of at shoulder height. And love is just directly in front of him going down the stairs. And it's just like the way that this whole sequence is framed is so incredibly beautiful, but it's so haunting. And again, juxtaposing it with the way that a similar sequence that we were talking about is playing out in the first film. You know, in the Tyrell Corp headquarters, everything is opulent and Baroque and full of detail and art deco and just everything. everywhere you look, there's just gold surfaces and pyramidal geometries and everything is just so beautiful. And in the Wallace Corp, as we're brought into it, that's kind of what we're expecting, I think, because we see it from the exterior and it's this palatial and and incomprehensibly large place. But then we go in, it really feels like a tomb, like a mausoleum. And it's just as beautiful, in my opinion, as the Tyrell Corp headquarters, but in the complete opposite way where it's almost the negation of any signs of opulence or anything. It's like it's it's hermetic almost. And I think we're cued to be thinking of that a little bit with the file clerk interaction because, Jamie, you're, you're absolutely right that he really comes across like he never talks to anybody. And you have to think like this is the receptionist at the front desk of the biggest company in the history of earth you know in this movie and he doesn't talk to anybody like nobody comes into the building so in my head canon you know that that client meeting that love is having is probably like the only meeting in person that day or that week like i really feel like basically nobody goes into that building so we're already kind of thrown off in the beginning by this appearance of just this like incredible quiet And then as they're walking along, you know, all these rows of these uh, serial numbers, there's no activity, there's no motion, there's nothing. And then I love how when love comes into that space, the energy gets so interesting, right? And this whole scene is a really great study in that and how tension is used. When love shows up, the file clerk is apparently he looks terrified to me he looks like he is if not in outright fear he is like i am going to get out like i am no longer needed there you go okay bye and he's you know squeezes past her and she doesn't move at all he is the one who presses himself up against the cabinet to get out of the way so he is very aware of how capable she is and how how senior she is above him in this company i would imagine and what she can what she's allowed to do what what, what wallace has entrusted her with so all of a sudden we as an audience are really put in this strange place where we feel afraid of her but she hasn't done anything scary to us right like she's been completely she's just there doing her job and being very professional but we like are instantly glued to this character we were like what what is she doing and then the rest of the scene as it plays out is a study in that because she keeps doing these things that are kind of cute like when the door gets stuck and she like throws it open and she's like sorry about that you know do you like our product all these little kind of cute things that she's saying to him as he's going along and then of course leading to the question that i'm sure we'll get to about what you know how what do you enjoy your work um there are all these moments that are only frightening or at least unsettling because of the context that the filmmakers have given us to watch them in and uh I think it's just it's just such an interesting like the way love unfolds as a character to me is really fascinating, and I love seeing her in this context because we don't know if we really should be concerned yet, but we feel like we should be.
2: To piggyback after that after that, what you said, Patrick, is so interesting because now it makes me think: Do I fear love because I know what she's capable of because I've seen this movie before, or I mean, I I'm trying to remember what it was like when we first met her. And if I was kind of more in the camp of, oh, she looks like Rachel, she acts like Rachel, she's being set up to be the like the version of Rachel for Wallace. But you're right, like there's this underlying tension of, oh, like, why, why do I feel like afraid for the clerk? Um, not necessarily afraid for Kay, but like there's definitely this potential for um violence in her that I think we can just sense underneath the scene. Like, she is very much in control. I wonder how often the clerk actually sees her. Um, and if that indicates, like, okay, so I have to leave because this is a big deal. She's here. Or, like, if does he see her a lot? Does, she, does he take direct orders from her or something? So it's just really interesting the power dynamic that they're able to very quickly convey in, again, very few words. Um, and I like how you pointed out, Patrick, that the clerk himself, who is a human... As far as we know, um, I think he is because of the baby picture comment and everything. Um, He's the one that kind of shrinks. I really like how you brought that up in her presence. So that's another sort of hint at, okay, love is not to be trifled with, um, which says a lot about the character and where she definitely grows from there. No one's been down here in ages.
1: that
2: something that i just love about um sylvia hux's performance is when Kay learns her name is love and he says oh he named you you must be special there's like this millisecond of a moment where you can just tell that that comment hurts love she doesn't like that she doesn't like that he knows like what she is and, and like that they're on it's almost like Kay has leveled the playing field here for a second, and she doesn't like that. But then she quickly pulls herself together and says, I'm here for Mr. Wallace again. She repeats that before moving on. So I just, God, I love that moment. It's amazing.
3: What I find interesting, certainly in in your description, Micah, is you're thinking, well, maybe um, Love didn't like that comment. The larger picture, at least from my perspective, and what's the most unsettling about all of this is when they finally are in the same space, you have two emotionless beings sharing the same space without emotion. And that is unsettling. And I, I feel like when s- emotion, having being without emotion or being without empathy, which is what I think replicants struggle with, it also pushes them towards a little bit more of a sociopath. So you're in the room with someone who's without emotion. How terrifying can that be? How do you relate to someone who doesn't have emotion? And it's complicated for them because it's not that they just don't have emotion. Number one, they weren't, I mean, I know Kay was given some memories just to kind of cushion him so he can relate, but he's still fairly emotionless. I was having this discussion with someone the other day about Kay and, oh, with our friend Rick, who does some of our social media, Rick Howard. And we're, He had posted a photo of Joy, and obviously everyone knows that we've talked about Joy quite a bit. Uh, Rick said something about the way Kay looked at her, and I said, what's interesting is we see Kay looking at Joy, but we don't—mostly with bewilderment. We don't know how he feels about her. He never says, I love you once. We've been through that before, but we don't know what's going on in their minds. So then, moving back into this discussion, you have these two replicants— who were engineered for a specific purpose, and we don't know what's going on in their minds. We don't really know what's happening. So what are we doing? We're imbuing them with what we think they might be feeling, when in fact, they're probably not feeling anything. But what's what's at play here, which is very different than Rachel and Deckard is, Deckard is there to get information. He doesn't really know who from, but he's there to get information. He doesn't really know who he's talking to. He doesn't know Rachel's a replicant. Um, there is She does not she has the agency of thinking that she's a human, so she's confident in that. In 2049, you have these two replicants and they both want information. You can see in love's eyes that she wants information. Why are you here? What you know, and he's like, Well, you know, people, you know how people feel about old serial numbers. They just would they just want to know where they got to. And obviously that answer is not enough for love. And then they have this discussion, and they're both trying to do their job but they're doing it also with a lack of emotion and she makes one step to ask him if he enjoys his job and then he looks at her knowing what she's doing seeing right through it and she knows it too seeing if she can like play to his humanity right after she makes that comment of it's nice being asked personal questions it makes one feel desired so then she asks him a personal question but he's not stupid you know he 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 was trained to work with people or other replicants and get information. He knows what she's doing. But for me, the most unsettling part is not that I feel like love is dangerous, at least in my perspective. I don't know what she wants. I mean, we know that she wants some information in terms of who Rachel is or what you know what the, the serial number is, but you don't know what's going on in their heads. This is not a Deckard and Rachel situation where there's some um, playing happening there. Where Rachel was playing with Deckard for a while, love does not give any of the in, the uh, that response that that Rachel does. When we see Rachel, it's kind of like love at first sight. She's so beautiful, and however much love is put together, well, she is no Rachel. And Sylvia Hex is beautiful, but she's a different kind of beauty than Rachel. She's she's just got a different thing happening. There's this. It's almost like the way she performed love like if you look at her face it's kind of blank there's really nothing there and that's scary as well when you can't read someone's eyes you can't read what's on their face and so then again you have these two people together trying to kind of they know they kind of have to work together to get information and it's going nowhere and to me that's what's the most unsettling about this thing
1: all our memory bearings from the time they're all damaged in the blackout but there are sometimes fragments
3: got a little boy shows you his butterfly collection. I take him to the doctor. Something a wasp crawling on your
1: arm. I'd kill it. He's
3: reading a magazine, and you come across a page and a photo of a girl. Is this testing whether I'm a replicant or a
1: lesbian,
3: Mr. Deckard. Just answer the question,
0: please. Yeah, their interplay is so fascinating because it seems like they're just aware enough of how they need to be acting to maintain the appearance of like conversationalism. Like, because when you think about it, like these are two replicants who are being, I mean, I'm sure they're being observed in some ways in that corporation, but like, there's no people there with them that they need to quote unquote, like act normal with. Right. But they still seem to be acting the way that they always act. Like that's just the way that they're, that they function. And with K, you know, he's there to get information he's also there not really knowing what's going on right cuz cuz he's gotten this serial number from the remains at Sapper's Tree right he has some indication that there's significance to them but he doesn't really know any of the background to this yet so he's going there not really knowing even what he's up to he just he knows that there is that there's something going on here that he needs to uncover and love and here's a question like does love know the significance of Rachel's serial number yet to me, she does, and she's very much downplaying this at, by virtue of her programming. Micah, you want to say something?
2: I just want to, um, like I just wanted to comment to what you said because I agree. I think she knows, and I think something that you are like hinting at is that she knows, and she is. I mean, like you said, Jamie, we are imbuing these people who aren't people with what we think they might be thinking or feeling. But how fascinating is that as an audience member? Anyway, but I think what I think she knows, and I think she has to hide that from him because that's giving him information that he wants. So I think to further your point, Patrick, and ask you guys a question, I know we see the next scenes as love taking action. So how urgent is this? And how urgent does this feel in the moment when love is communicating with Kay? Like, do you think that? after Kay leaves is immediately when she goes to work to start finding everything. And like, she becomes this agent of, um, I don't know, just, she just becomes this active agent of Wallace's. So I just think it's so interesting that she may know how important it is before Kay does. And how do you guys feel about that?
0: Yeah. And just, uh, just going off of that also, it's, it's interesting that she then plays the memory Uh, bearing with him right like if if you would think that she would not do that so quick like if she if she knew the significance of it why would she be divulging that to k because k hears this interaction and he immediately knows that there's something different going on here because of their interplay because rachel is a replicant as far as he can tell but she's not acting like one at a time period when replicants were supposed to be different than that like replicants were supposed to know what they were and it seems like she doesn't and that gets commented on in the scene. So it's it's a it's a weird like why did she go that direction? Yeah, that's a good good
3: question. My supposition would be she knows that there was a child born from Rachel. Kay has no idea. He has he's just there on the job, doing just you know doing a call, finding out where the serial number went. But definitely, I would imagine. Rachel or love knows why he's there. Well, he doesn't she doesn't know why he's there, but she knows the significance of Rachel uh as as a replicant and her serial number and they've been searching for her for a while as we would later on find out from Wallace himself that they've been trying to make replicants uh or give replicants the ability to procreate and it hasn't been working. They've had the key, they've had Rachel's uh, elements there for a while, maybe. I, I don't really know for sure. I mean, sir, uh, yeah, I would imagine they they didn't even need her hair to eventually they remake her. Um, so I, I would agree totally with Micah that I love knows what's happening. And Kay is just completely, he doesn't really care. He's just doing his job and he wants to go home. Um, but what was the question that you had, though, Mike? I'm sorry.
2: I guess it wasn't quite a question. I didn't. I didn't put it well enough. But I just think it's a, an interesting thing to think about that love knows, and Kay is just like maybe two or three steps behind her. Mm. And it's also interesting, Patrick, that why does she play that fragment? And do you think she's heard that fragment many times before? Like, is this something that she studies to try to help Wallace recreate that? Um, ability to procreate for his replicants I just think I I I wonder the way she handles it I mean obviously it's a very delicate piece of technology but she handles it with so much care like this is clearly something important that she's studied before how many times has she pulled this one out for her own purposes or for Wallace's purpose to like replay that scene again and again and again so they could figure out how to how to better their replicants so I guess my thought or like question esque thing is like it's I guess I'm just thinking about the pull pull and push with how much love knows versus how much K knows and that sort of cat and mouse thing that she's kind of doing by dangling a little bit more of information in front of him. I do I wonder she could have easily said oh the fragment doesn't really work or why does she why does she allow him more information? Maybe she thinks he can give more.
3: Probably. He probably thinks, I mean, you can see in love, and she later says says it towards the end of the film, I'm the best one. And there's this confidence in love that you don't see in Kay. Kay's confident, but not, love feels like she's elite. She comes off, she portrays herself like she's elite. She's this elite model. So in my opinion, I would imagine, sure, let him hear it, because whatever he finds, we'll find too. You know, this stupid replicant who's on you know what I mean, who's on the job. Um, like what does K matter to her? Nothing. She's nothing to her. She is his superior. She's probably even a different model than him, honestly. Um, a special model created for Wallace himself. Um, but yeah, it, it is fascinating just to and then having them both hear it, because she's probably heard this before. She's standing there with him and he's probably hearing it very differently than she is. How is he hearing it differently? What clues is that audio bringing up for him that maybe she couldn't find? I don't know.
0: Well, and then also remembering that I I think what's actually going on is exactly that. I think that this is the cue now to start tracking Kay because when, of course, we know in the trash mesa that she's tracking his location and seeing what he's up to and they're, they're following him. So they're kind of letting him do the groundwork for them. Like they're letting him use his investigative tools and his analysis and his team at the LAPD to to divine exactly what's going on and, and where to go next. And I think, uh yeah, I think what's what's so cool though is that Kay, of course, is completely unaware of that, even though he's this elite detective, like he doesn't know that he's being played, which is sort of why I think love is so Insidiously effective in this situation because she is able to. Co- she comes across like so naive. That's the thing too. That's interesting, right? In this interaction, when she's asking him the personal question and things, she really seems like a kid. Like she gives off the energy of a, of being like an awkward middle schooler who is sort of semi flirting and doesn't really know what to do. So kind of being a little bit quiet and awkward. Um, but in the body and in the composition of this, like very powerful you know, seemingly woman. And uh, so that juxtaposition is so cool. And I think it also is disarming because I think Kay doesn't think, like he becomes disarmed by that in a way, not all the way, like he doesn't go, he doesn't take the bait, right? But I think he does, he thinks probably, okay, this was useful. Thank you for giving me your time. And then he goes on with his investigation, not knowing that he's just triggered the series of things that will then lead them to find him in Las Vegas, for example, later on in the film. Uh, I also just want to, talk for a second about the actual the the memory palace you know in the basement of or not in the basement wherever that is in, in wallace because i think uh there's a couple really interesting things going on there for one it's such a stark contrast to the yellow and brown of the rest of the wallace corporation right like that's all sepia toned and very kind of yellow yellow hued with the wood and the vaulting and the stonework and then when we go into the memory vault uh, yeah, yeah, that's what it is, not Memory Palace. And we go into the memory vault, it's white and blue, right? So just in terms of the you know luminosity and color spectrum, it's completely opposite to the rest of the building. And what I love about that is a couple things. But one is that when we do get that replay and we hear Deckard and Rachel's voices again, and we get a, a, I mean, a replay of maybe 20 seconds of that scene that we just did an episode about, that scene feels so warm to us because in this cold scary sterile emotionless environment on this little screen that pops up as we slowly move into it we get this beautiful we get that beautiful warm yellow gold tone again we see Rachel's pupil we get this like very this the playback of the audio is a little bit messed up and uh, glitchy because it's a milky memory bearing but that gives it almost this analog quality where it just feels like a record being played and it's such a warm and human feeling moment in the context of this very cold very stark environment and i think that's a major part of why that is so effective and of course you know remembering the first time we saw this movie that was like breathtakingly powerful because it was the actual voices from the previous film 35 years later coming back to us in this new movie being watched by these like aliens basically who the nexus nines are where they really don't know what they're what they're seeing either and i think that that uh, juxtaposition is really key to why this movie feels so true to the spirit of the original because it feels like the original is is vibrating through it the entire time in all these ways and sometimes those ways poke up right like most most notably when we see deckard again but also in like the pictures and in the bone fragments and seeing you know rachel's uh you know serial number and things like there are moments where the previous film breaks through the surface and then goes back down and this is such a great example of that because it happens in the most non-blade runner 2019 moment of like the whole movie like that memory vault to me in terms of visuals it's really far removed from anything in the original movie in terms of characters like they're really very different from deckard and rachel and yet we get deckard and rachel in that and it really rings true, I think, to Blade Runner fans.
1: It was unclear what she was, at least to someone. This was a test. We were difficult to spot then.
2: It's also cool how um <clears throat> Kay and Love are discussing what their predecessors were like, just like humans discuss what our predecessors were like when we didn't have the technology, when we didn't have this or that, modern medicine, whatnot. It's really interesting, like the way love says, "Oh, back then we were," um, I forget we exactly the exact harder we're, to
0: spot back then.
2: We were harder to spot back then. Um, so she's note noting the differences between quote unquote their kind now and replicants back then in the environment, like you so aptly described, Patrick. That is so different. Like it's it's like okay, these replicants are different, and they're in a different environment but let's also look back and talk about that world from the original movie that delighted the and it sparked all of this interest in this this world. So it's so cool that like they do that within that environment like you said, like it is very cold, it's very blue and and cool toned and yet you're like, "Oh yeah, remember this exchange and how um how exciting it was to watch for the first time. And now we have these future people like dissecting it who are also replicants. It's just, it's like I said, in the beginning, it's just so layered. Um, And I just wanted to go back very briefly to what we were talking about with Kay and what he knows of love and what love knows of Kay. And I think it's really interesting that Kay, like you said, Patrick, that Kay kind of Takes his information from her and he's like, okay, thank you. He probably doesn't think, that he, he probably doesn't think that he'll see this person again. But and it's like, it's like what Wallace presents to him is this like beautiful lap dog that's like meant to be looked at. Like this is my pet here, and she's pretty and she's put together and she's pleasant. But what she really is is a hunting dog, and she's immediately triggered, like you said, which is so fascinating that the information that they give each other does different things for each character and they go their separate ways, but yet they're now, now they're linked and now they go forward in their journey together for essentially the rest of their lives, actually the rest of their lives. But yeah, it's so cool. This one scene.
3: What's also interesting about love is she reveals something about herself right early on. And that's when she pushes that door open. So the door is trying. So right away we're seeing this woman is strong. she's not, We're never told that love is a replicant, but then we realize, because they show without telling, and and we can put the pieces together, and then Kay, of course, says, oh, he named you. So then all of our ideas about who she is come to a head. Okay, she's a replicant, but she shows her strength, almost showing it to Kay by accident. Like, okay, I can give you a run for your money. Like, I yes, I'm a replicant, and you might know this, but I'm strong. Not that she's saying any of those things, with her body language. But her strength says that. The fact that she can pull this door open says who she is in some ways. But going back to the conversation that they're having, what I also realize, and it reminds me of Pris and Roy a little bit, is Pris and Roy were children. They were children. Kay and Love are also children. They have a set of memories. They have something in there, inside them to kind of give them a foundation. But these are children who probably don't know how to act. Even their their body language together, they're very uncomfortable together. They don't seem—it's almost like they know they shouldn't be together. That's not why they're there to be with other replicants. They're there to do the bidding of humans. They just seem uncomfortable. However, most of the time you see love in Wallace's company. She looks uncomfortable. She looks terrified. She looks scared. But with Kay, it's just this strange interaction where— she makes a point to kind of connect with him, but he sees right through it. There's almost like this programming inside of them where they know that they're not supposed to congregate together or supposed to be together, and you can feel it in their awkwardness. I don't know if that's true, but there's definitely a strange awkwardness about them, but it's also the awkwardness of children. Children are kind of awkward around each other for a little bit. They don't really, and they ask strange questions, and then maybe 20 minutes later, they're best friends for life. But These children, these replicants are very different than that, whereas they might emotionally be children, but they also have a programming, a directive that pushes them forward. And it's interesting to see play out in 2049.
2: Yeah, it's like their relationship is almost doomed in a way. Um, And you get a little bit of a sense of that, just the tiniest taste of that in this scene, because they do end up destroying each other, as we know. Um, and I really like that you you compared them Jamie to um Chris and and Roy because it's true they they're testing each other they don't know if what they're saying or how they're behaving or how they're standing or where they're putting their hands is okay it's just like they're they're having to figure that out and they don't I feel like there's a perceived like they don't appreciate having to do that they're 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 both confident replicants in their own right when they're in their elements. And now they're taken out of their elements by being put together and having to discuss something that is clearly very important. One of them knows how important it is. And the other is on their way to discovering how important it is. So there's all, that's what contributes to the depth of this scene. It's, it's just so, so packed. It's amazing.
0: And also keeping in mind that for love, There's something else going on here, which is so, so love's single, you know, mandate is to do the bidding of Wallace, right? Like she was created for that. She is inhibited to be able to only do that. And her entire life exists in service of her builder, basically. And so for her, as we see on the Sepulveda wall, her entire mission is to be the best one. Like she was created to be the best replicant. And she, as far as we can tell is in terms of how incredibly capable she is, how you know well made she is. like she really is an astonishingly effective thing, right? or if not person. but it's it's interesting though, I find myself when I talk about the Nexus nine models like there is such a because of the way they were made that like I have less of an issue calling love like a thing, even though she's not like she's more than that. But like I would never in a million years call Rachel a thing or call Roy Batty a thing, which is kind of interesting. Anyway, um, and I do think there was more to love than what I'm talking about, but in the context of the movie, what we're given is this this being that was made to only serve Wallace, who can never serve him the best because she can't reproduce. And because she knows that that's actually what he wants and that if he could have built her with that, he would have, but he, but he doesn't know how yet, and it's not working properly. And so love can be as incredibly effective as any replicant could ever be. She could be the best employee in the entire galaxy. And she probably is. And yet she will never bear him the fruit that he's trying to create. And Rachel is the key to that. And so in this scene, she's for the first time, aware that like this, actually this incredible missing link has been located, or at least is about to be located. And uh, so there must be this other thing going on with love in this scene where she, on some level is aware that like, this is about to phase her out. Like if, if this succeeds, this is the end of love being the best one. And then in the end of the film, when she's pummeling, you know, K and they're fighting and she screams that there says it really loudly rather, there's this all of this subtext behind it because she knows that she has to say it now because she can no longer be if this mission is fulfilled and uh so that's kind of playing under the surface and maybe that's playing into why she's so strange during that you know as she's watching the the as she's watching the memory bearing and she's seeing the thing replay like she must be thinking to herself like wow i'm watching my own my own oblivion to go to perfect organism language for a moment like this this is inside this milky capsule is the end of my necessity in terms of Wallace. And in terms of Wallace is the only terms she knows.
1: Was there anything unusual about how you found her? To warrant an official investigation? You know how people are about old serial numbers. Everyone just sleeps better when they know where they got to. She likes him. Who? Officer Deckard. She's trying to provoke him. It is invigorating being asked personal questions. Makes one feel... desire. Do you enjoy your work, officer?
3: Please thank Mr. Wallace for your time. I have so many other, like, this brings up so many other, like, things. I, I, as I think of Kay and Kay interacting with love, I, I've been thinking a lot about Kay lately, and um, this is fodder for another episode, but I think about, which I would love to do with Anatomy of a Scene, when Kay's in the apartment and then uh, Mariette comes over, and it's juxtaposition between uh, Deckard and when Rachel comes over and he pushes her against the wall, Kay is experiencing very similar things. He's kind of there, and he didn't agree to any of it. And he's being pushed into this by this joy, whatever she is. And then this other woman comes over. Anyways, uh, there's just a lot going on in my head as to who Kay is. Kay is kind of Rachel in some ways in this movie. He's kind of Deckard in this movie, but he's also neither of these things. And, And when he goes to Wallace's and he meets Love... Love is almost the Deckard in that in that role. Love needs things from him. You can see it in her eyes. She's trying to get information from him, and it's not going to work. But she is not there to play around with him. I mean, I don't even know if she gets playful with him. But she just asks him a question. Whereas with Rachel and Deckard, Rachel was very playful with him. Very like you know, like like he says he's goading her, or she's goading him. She likes him. You don't get that sense at all from Love and. And Kay, that there's this romance between them, or that Kay is falling for love. That is clear, clear as day. Even when we're like when we first meet love, I'm not under any pretenses that love is the new Rachel. I don't fall for love the way I fell for Rachel. There's just something steely about her. What's also interesting? Um, and this will probably be my final comments because I know we need to wrap soon, but when they're walking down the stairs and you see the replicants in the in the big tanks, they're walking by merchandise. They, it feels like merchandise. They even though they look human, they don't feel human. It feels like robots in a tank or some type of organic robots in a tank. And so you have these merchant you have merchandise walking by merchandise. And 2049 really uh, presents replicants in a way that 2019 doesn't. Whereas 2019, I feel like everyone I'm seeing is human. In the replicants in 2049, I don't feel that way. They feel like things. And I don't know why that is. That's a question for another day. But uh and those things are then talking to each other in the basement or whatever part of Wallace Corporation uh they're in and trying to get information. And it's just it's as cold and isolating as they are. Um there's no warmth there. There's no warmth from them. They're just robots on 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 call. It's very interesting.
0: And of course, that's the fate that post-blackout replicants were doomed to. And and that, uh, in my closing thoughts here, is so fascinating too, because this is the scene where we learn about the blackout. This is where all of this comes from, which has gone on to inspire tons of stuff in other media, like the comic books, most notably, but um, also really informs the events of the movie. And we learn more about why they are the way they are, like why these Nexus 9 models are so flat emotionally and why they're so so much less human, because like humans didn't want to be confused about what they were looking at anymore right like humans wanted basically people to control and they wanted to always know that they could and so when we see rachel in in 2019 we see none of that like we see this this replicant who was built to think she was human and has no idea of what she is, and because of that, she feels like she could be anything. Anything could happen, and we see what happens when you take that away from somebody in this movie. We see what happens when you when you rob people of that of that agency, but also that ability to feel emotions that make humans human. As we see them, and that's that's the part of the beautiful journey in closing of this film is that we get to see Kay improbably and against all of the odds that were stacked against him find some semblance of that we get to see him find some humanity within himself and we get to see him find some sense of like a soul whatever that would be because by the end of the film he really reads to me like a like a human replicant the way that the nexus sixes and sevens and and seven did and i think that's like a beautiful thing that this movie gives us and this scene Without this scene, we wouldn't get any of that because we wouldn't see the journey that he has in front of him. But this is really the beginning of that journey for him. And I I just love that it exists. Closing
3: thoughts, Micah?
2: I mean, I could talk for four more hours about this. (laughs) Um, It's true. like, It's just such an incredible setup. And like you said, Jamie, I agree that the replicants of 2049 do feel colder and feel more like merchandise. They're literally like... Naked bodies in a tank. So, like, that's incredibly dehumanizing. They don't have any skin texture or features when they're walking by them. So, and you're right too, Patrick. Like, this is the beginning of K breaking free from that. Like, he truly does learn how to feel things throughout the rest of his journey. And it's just phenomenal to watch that. It's phenomenal to see this growing opposition from love and how volatile she is because of her purpose. I really liked talking about um, how she knows then that that could be her doom. Patrick, like you said, when she's watching this fragment, it's like haunting her. And now it's more real that um, Kay has brought her Rachel's serial number back. So it's just, it's like such a fascinating catalyst scene that we could, like I said, discuss forever. And uh, I struggled to put my final thoughts together because I can't, stop talking about it you know what i mean but yeah um the performances the visuals the music during it it's just groundbreaking and um we'll continue to talk about it i'm sure
3: yeah thank you everybody for joining yeah thanks for listening If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.